Chapter 14 of Forgotten Gold. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Forgotten Gold by Julian Stafford Corbett. Chapter 14. How the next day passed with me, I cannot say. I spent it, I know, in my library, pacing up and down, and thinking over and over again of all that had happened since last the sun rose. I remember angrily putting away the divinity books which lay on my table, and taking down others at random, but they would not speak to me as they used, or perhaps I could not hear them for the din of self-reproach in my head. Many times I tried to think what lucky chance it was that brought Harry to the inn, but I could not guess, nor did I ever know, till the sergeant told me he came there by hazard, on his way from the popish gentleman's house, for a cup of spiced wine because they were wet and seeing in the stable my horse and his wife's pillion saddle had guessed the bitter truth which the hostess speedily confirmed after a heavy night's rest had soothed me i arose at a late hour and saw things more clearly i took down my phaedo platonis and read it till I began to see right from wrong again. Gradually, it seemed to me that there was but one thing to do. I would ride over to Ashted once more, see Harry, and tell him I was going away. I knew not for how long or where, but to some land in which I could learn the lessons his troubles had taught him. So I would crave his pardon in years to come, and take my leave of all I loved. It was towards evening that I slowly crossed the park, and came to the little wicket that opened into the pretty Italian garden which Harry had made for his wife. There I tied my horse, as I had often done before, and entered. The terraces on either hand were in grotesque solemnity. The cognizance of his house frowned from many a half-heaven pedestal, were ablaze with the first flowers of spring, salondine, fritillary, flower de luce, and all were there, like pretty laughing maids who knew their beauty and waywardly transgressed the trim stone mouldings, within their luxuriance could not be content. From a white-mouthed dragon's head the water spouted with a pleasant tinkle into the glassy basin that occupied the midst. The little trout that played there were springing merrily for the evening flies, whilst from the ivy and honeysuckle that was fast covering the enclosing walls, and from the blossom-laden pear trees 
in the orchard hard by. The birds were singing the requiem of the dying day. At the end, towards the house, between two vases that overflowed with wood graph, a flight of steps led upwards to the grassy terrace before Mrs. Waldive's parlor. One lattice of her bow window was open, and as I mounted the steps, I could hear the low sound of singing within. Very sad it came to me amidst the gay caroling of the birds, so sad that I could not choose but go softly across the little velvet lawn and peep between the mullions. Oh, what a sight was there! Rocking herself to and fro in her chair miserably, sat Mrs. Waldive, with hair and dress disordered. Her face was pale, her eyes hollow with weeping, and on her knees slumbered her little son, as though there was no world but in that small peaceful face. She leant over it, and now and again touched the tiny brow with her lips, singing ever the same mournful song. She rocked herself and leaned over the baby. I could hear the words she sang, some which her grief had made for her, and as I listened I cursed all in heaven and earth, and above all myself, for thus she sang a lullaby to her son. Sleep, baby, sleep, for so thou canst, thou hast no sense to strive. Lolly, lolly, my babe, hope is not dead. Love keepeth hope alive. Sleep, baby, sleep, he will come back. Back, honey, sweet, to the hive. Lolly, lolly, my babe, love is not dead. Thou keepest love alive. Those words told me true what had befallen. I should have known well enough, even had it not been for the letter she held crushed in her hand and kissed as I watched her. It was easy to guess what it said, though I could not read the words. Years after I saw it again, she herself showed it me. Long afterwards, when all was healed, it still bore witness then how she had crushed it in her grief. It was still blistered with her tears, and this is what was written there. To Mrs. Waldive, my own sweet wife, you shall receive, dear wife, my parting words in these my parting lines. If I ever held your love, as indeed I think I did, it was by the poor things my sword had done. Now I go, I know not whither, to see if haply I may win it again to me beyond the seas, or at least forget a little of what I have lost. My love, I leave you, though I know it is a little thing to you, yet hoping, when I am gone, you will find some place for it, if only it be when you kneel to pray for our boy, I would not 
my last gift should be reproaches. Dear Nan, such are not for me. Seeing it was my own short comment that I could not keep your love. But first, I send you all the thanks my heart can conceive or my pen express for your many cares and troubles taken from me, whom unworthy you strove to love. And secondly, I would commend to you my poor child, for his father's sake, whom, in his happiest times, I trow you loved and would have loved still, had he been worthy. I cannot write much. God knows how hardly I wrote even thus far. The everlasting, infinite, universal God, that is goodness itself, keep you and yours, have mercy on me, and teach me to forgive those who have wronged me, amongst whom, believe me, none, from my heart, I hold you not one. My wife, farewell. Bless my poor boy. Pray your all-conquering prayers for him. My true God, hold you both in his arms. Your most loving and worthy husband, Harry Waldive. From Rochester, this 30th day of April, 1572. I cannot but rejoice that I then knew no more of that letter than that by her kissing of it, it was from him, and by the words of her song that it told how he was gone. My heart was already so seared and torn with shame at my work that, had I known how pathetic was his farewell, how deep and noble his sorrow, how touching his self-reproaches, and his training in the anguish of his misery after the lost faith of his childhood. I know not how I should have borne the pain. What to do now I could not think. To go in to her was impossible, as she sat there grieving with her baby upon her knees, and the letter in her hand. She seemed to me a holy thing, more purely sanctified in her motherhood and grief to him she had lost than ever was vessel to her goddess. All faith and reverence I thought had left me, yet I could have worshipped that mother and child as devoutly as ever a poor papist bowed before the virgin shrine. Still, there was a holiness about them I dared not profane, even with my worship. I felt a thing too unclean even to stand on the steps of the altar. She was now enshrined, and I crept away like the guilty thief I was. Hardly less difficult was it to go and leave her alone in the desert I had made of the fair garden where but for me she might have dwelt so happily. To go was cowardly. It was sacrilege to stay. I had no guide to show me my way, no friend from I could consult. Wearily, rather drifting than with any set purpose, I descended the steps, passed by the tinkling water, through the perfume-laden air, 
closed the wicket behind me, and so rode home, my errand undone. He was gone, I knew not whither, and there was no one of whom I could seek counsel. I would have gone to Mr. Drake to tell him all and seek comfort, but the thought of the good man's hard Calvinism repelled me now. He would not understand. As for Mr. Cartwright, he was still less to be thought of. For very shame, I dared not confess to his holy ears the depth to which I had fallen. Even could I have hoped for sympathy from him. No, there was none to ease me of my burden. He was gone, and I must follow, follow and bring him back to her, and then rid them forever of my accursed presence. That was all I could think of. And on the morrow, after committing my affairs to old Miles' hands, I rode to Gravesend, and so came next day by river to London, whither I heard from the boatman he was gone. As I have said, I came to London drifting, rather than with any set purpose. As soon as I had sought for Harry at my lord of Bedford's, and at the lodging where he was wont to lie when in London, and found no news of him, I was at loss what to do. I had no friends in London that I knew of, nor was I so much acquainted with any there except my merchant and old Mr. Follett, who had a lodging in Warwick Court, where he was of easy access to his scholars, both those about the court and those who were sons to wealthy citizens. To him I was resolved to go, not so much in hope to hear of Harry, as trusting in my forlorn state to receive comfort from him, when I remembered how peaceful and content was his life, and yet without any comfort of religion that I was ever able to discover. I found him polished and kindly and gentle as ever, and bound still in willing servitude to his apology, he welcomed me very warmly, refusing any denial that I would sup with him. Our first commendation over, he fell to asking me of my life and work, so that we easily came to talk of those deep matters wherein my trouble lay. I cannot but rejoice, my dear Jasper, said the old scholar, bending on me his intelligent, clear eyes, that you have come to your present state. It was always my desire that you should see that as a rule or touchstone of right living. Nay, if you will, as a virgula divina, or diving red, whereby to discover the pure water of life, Religion is in no comparison with scholarship, so long as man shall pursue religion as a chief end, so long shall they be ever athirst and rage in these present fevers that now be, 
I hold there are three special points in education, or the leading forth of life, the same being truth in religion, honesty in living, and right order in learning. I name them in the order in which the three are now commonly held. Yet you know, as I do, that in order of excellence, these points should be reversed. Then you would not have a scholar, said I, lay aside religion altogether? I see no need for that, he answered. It was not so in the past golden days of scholarship, before Reformation violently killed the old kindly tolerance of the Ramis church. Side by side, they could not exist. So Rome grew hard perforce, and Geneva has hard to withstand her, and so the good old days were ended. Even the days when a man would first take heed that his order of learning was rightly governed according to the precepts of the immortal Stagerite, from which, secondly, would flow by the bestowing of such leisure as remained, as sufficient honestly in living, the whole being sweetened and tempered with such truth of religion as came of itself, without straining out of the other two. It is this straining after God that so troubles the world and burns up the scholarship. They draw the ardor of heaven too near whereby the inflammable principles whereof he is in great measure composed, so heat men's blood and set their stomachs on fire, that cool scholarship itself is set in a blaze, and serves but to feed the fires of controversy, whereby learning honestly and religion itself are fast being consumed. Surely, then, it were better, said I, to shut out this disturbing element that makes life so turbid, better to deafen our ears to this note which sets all our harmony awry. No, Jasper, answered Mr. Follett, that is impossible. That far off note is your octavo, as Pythagoras taught. You, with your spiritual nature, We'll always hear it sounding in unison with that which you yourself are making as you live your life. If there is discord in your ears, it is that you are sounding some other note awry between your fundamental earthly note and his in the Empyrean. By your scholarship, I judge your first harmony must be Diatrian to the orbit of Mercury, which is science, and thus, if you would have conquered, your next must be Diapente to the orbit of Mars, which is manhood and knightly adventure. So can you reach through your full diapason to God, and sound your third and just fifth in complete and peaceful harmony with the universe. So I would advise you, if the music of your life has seemed meager, but above all beware of the fourth, 
which is the orbit of Venus, that shall bring you nothing but most jarring discord, wherein you shall find no rest. The old man looked out at me from his clear eyes so shrewdly that although I could only guess at his meaning, I felt he had divined the true cause of my discomfort. How far he had learned it, I cannot say, yet I could not help calling to mind the many times I had written to him concerning my most pleasant studies with Mrs. Waldive. I found in my old tutor a strange mingling of shrewd worldly knowledge and unreal speculation which drew me nearer to him than I had ever had wit to be in my boyhood. It is true I hoped to get little help from his medley of philosophies, yet his conversation fascinated me in spite of the half-mystic vagueness that seemed to be growing on him with his old age, and I stayed with him till a late hour. Whether right or wrong for others, his own way of thought had brought him to an old age of profound peace, most enviable to me in the tempestuous flood of doubt that had overwhelmed my life since the dams of my faith, which I had deemed to secure, had burst. Moreover, his whole discourse was so seasoned with spicery from the writings of the ancients, and above all his beloved Aristotle, that it was very pleasant to hear, though beyond what my memory will bear to write. Moreover, I wished to speak with him about his apology, which he had not once mentioned. No one but myself can truly know how great must have been his sympathy with my troubled state, or how much he must have denied himself to minister to it, when for two hours he never once spoke of his manuscript, at last moved to a pity because of his exceeding kindness. I asked him how it fared. Bravely, bravely, my dear discipulus, said he with beaming face. It has been long in getting set forth because of the great growth which it has attained by reason of the weighty arguments I continually found. Still, the day for the great purging of scholarship is very near. I am near to finishing the Latin text, in which form I have been weightily advised the work should appear although I had purposed otherwise for the glory of the English tongue. The right honorable the Earl of Bedford has promised to receive the dedicatory epistle, so that I doubt not, with so noble and learned a sponsor, my child shall find an honorable reception in the courts of science. This, and much more to like purpose, he spoke till I took my leave, much comforted by his kindliness, yet little relieved of my inward sickness. Lashmar, 
who had been passing the time of my visit with Mr. Follett's servant, came to my chamber as usual to entrust me when we reached our lodging. He seemed full of something, which, after a little painful repressing, he poured forth. Did your worship hear whither he had gone? asked he. Whither who had gone? said I. Was not your worship seeking news of Mr. Waldive? he asked again. Certes, I was, said I, but that is no concern of yours. No, sir, none, he answered, save that I hold all that concerns you concerns your faithful servant, but since it is not, so let it pass. So he fell into a sullen silence, till I, feeling he held news, could refrain no longer from asking what he meant. Nay, I meant nothing, sir, said he. A gentleman's movements are nothing to me, but since I thought Mr. Follett would have told you whither he had gone, I made bold to inquire, for he was ever a most kind gentleman to me, but since there is offense in it, let it pass. But what made you think Mr. Follett should know this? I asked sharply. Nay, sir, I pray you let it pass. I have no longer desire to know what concerns me not. But I have desire to know what you meant, Sirrah. Then, saving your displeasure, it was foolish idle whim of mine, that I'm but a dance and unlearned to think that since Mr. Waldive was with Mr. Follett yesterday, he would have given your worship news of him. I was a stupid, foolish fancy, so I pray you let it pass. Mr. Waldive with Mr. Follett yesterday, say you? I cried as soon as I recovered breath. Why, how know you this, Lashmar? Nay, I know it not, said he, making occasion of my anxiety to have revenge for my sharpness. What a plague makes you say it then? Why, sir, because Mr. Follett's man knows it, and Mr. Follett's man told me how Mr. Waldive was with his master for the space of two hours save a thimbleful of sand yesterday about supper time, during all which time he had to wait for good manner's sake, though like to die of a watery mouth for thinking of a roasted rabbit and a dish of prunes that were bespoke for him, and two other blades at the portcullis tavern hard by. Pace, pace, draw rein on your galloping tongue, good Lashmer, and tell me whither he has gone. If I could, sir, but I cannot, nor Mr. Follett, nor Mr. Follett's man, neither, for in truth, he told none of them anything, save that they were not like to see him for a good space to come. Then leave me, Lashmer, and good night. Go to your bed now, and find a kind thought for a heart-sick master. Heaven save your worship, and pardon 
a Malapert servitor, said Lashmer, and left me to my thoughts. First, I think, I pondered over Mr. Follett's great tenderness with me, when, as I felt, he must have known all. Then I tried to come to conclusions with myself what I was to do. The more I pondered, the more it seemed useless to search farther for Harry, and the more I dwelt on what Mr. Follett had said to me of sounding the note of Mark's orbit as a cure for my discords. I felt shamed, moreover, to think that my old tutor knew all. I felt I could no more go back and face him. Nay, I felt as though everyone knew my shame, and a desire grew in me to fly far away from it all. I began to reason with myself as to what good end it would serve to find Harry. And now it seemed that even if I could find him, I dared not face him. My bold resolves were melting to cowardice in the heat of my remorse, and utterly purposeless and alone, I crept with a broken spirit to my bed. End of chapter 14